you have your Bibles tonight, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, which is where we will be for our message tonight. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the really great passages in the New Testament. If you polled maybe everybody here tonight, you know, what's your, you know, what are some of your favorite passages from the scriptures? I'm sure many of us, you know, if we were to list our top five passages, Ephesians chapter 2 would be on that list if you're familiar with it. So as I was trying to think of, you know, when you have an opportunity to preach and you don't do it regularly, it's, it's always, you know, what do I go to? What passage? And one of the first things that I always do is I go back and I dig into the files and I look for, you know, is there something that I've done before? Uh, that uh, maybe I could pull out and, and kind of look back through and, and redo and present again. And I found the last a few weeks ago when I knew I was on the schedule here, a series of messages that I had done back uh, when I was leading the, the college and career ministry years and years ago on Ephesians chapter 2. And I was reading back through them and I was remembering how much I really enjoyed preaching these messages to that group, and I was like, you know what, that's, that's what I want to go back to here. So, full disclosure, I actually preached this message in an evening service here at Lakeside a little bit more than nine years ago. Uh, I was still in high school at the time. Uh, times were very different. Gas was 30 cents a gallon. Most of you weren't even born yet, so I figured it was safe to go back and do this message again. But really, I wouldn't want to skip it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 tonight, because I'd like to, as I have opportunity, go back through Ephesians chapter 2, if I get Sunday evening opportunities or something like that in the future. And just because I had preached a few years ago, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I decided I didn't want to go on and start with verse 4 and just tell you, hey, go back and find it in the archives if you're really interested. Because Ephesians chapter 2, like we said, is a tremendous passage, theologically rich, full of truth about God and man and sin and salvation and mercy and compassion and grace. But to really get the full force of the chapter you can't skip the first three verses. Because without them, nothing else really has any weight. And so I've I've titled this message, you can see in your bulletin, Who You Were. Because so much of Ephesians chapter 2 deals with who you are now, but it all goes back to who you were. And so I want to look tonight at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. But we don't want to just jump into it. Before we read these verses, we want to understand the context of the passage. Because in order to understand the full, or to get the full weight of this passage, we have to understand why it even exists in the first place. And to do that, we want to go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Actually to verse 16. Where Paul, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, he says... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
And then he goes on after that to tell them very briefly what it is that he prays for them. And so in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1, he says that he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. He writes to the believers of Ephesus, he says, this is my goal for you. When I pray, I want you to grow or to have a spirit of wisdom, to grow in the knowledge of God, and to know the hope to which he has called you. He says, I want you to understand all of these things. And sometimes, if we get too hasty to jump into so great a chapter, we miss the purpose that frames it, and thus we tend to kind of misunderstand it. We'll get much more out of it if we understand why the Apostle Paul is writing these words to the Ephesian church. It's for our own personal growth, first of all, as Christians. So the whole context coming from chapter 1 determines the goal of this passage. The end result for us, if we properly then understand Ephesians chapter 2, will be wisdom, growth in our knowledge of God, and knowledge of the hope that we have to which He has called us. So we'll focus first on verses 1 through 3 in the greater context of verses 1 through 10 that deals with us as individual Christians. We need to know, if we are to grow as Christians, what God has done for us personally, as individuals. We now have, because of what He has done, a personal identity that we did not have before. And so He begins to accomplish this goal by explaining to the church at Ephesus and to us in our day, who we were before Christ. And that's what brings us to verses 1-3 through of chapter 2, which we'll go ahead and read now. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So the outline tonight is very simple. There are four things that Paul gives us here in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 that describe our condition before we came to Christ. And if we're to understand or if we're to grow in our knowledge of God, in our wisdom, as Christians... Paul says you need to understand what God has done for you and to understand who you are now, you need to first understand who you were. So we're going to look at four things tonight that described our condition before Christ. The first one we see in verse 1 of chapter 2 where he says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. First thing that characterized our condition before Christ is that we were dead. And there is no clearer statement in Scripture on the sinfulness of man apart from Christ than that four-letter word, D-E-A-D, dead. Our father, the first human being on the face of this earth, Adam, sinned. 
And his sin killed him. And he passed on that spiritual attribute of death to his offspring. You see, while Adam died spiritually because he sinned, it's not the same for us. The scriptures tell us that we're not dead because we sin, but rather we sin. We do things that, is con- that are contrary to the will of God. We sin because we are dead. And a spiritually dead person can do no other than to sin. Our actions come out of our very dead natural nature. There are those who might say, well, I don't act okay, in any way that, that I don't want to. I have free will. Okay, I make my choices. I'm not dead in sin. I wouldn't argue with the statement that you have free will. We have free will as sinful human beings, nor would the Scriptures. You see, our wills are always free, but because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, because our our sinful nature, we simply freely choose to do what we desire by nature. You see, if you think of the animal kingdom, a dog will always act like a dog, freely. A pig will freely, always, act like a pig. You could take a pig out of the barnyard, you could clean it up, you could dress it up, you could put fancy clothes on it, maybe a nice little hat. You could make it go to fancy dinners, you can bring it into your house. You could give that pig all the opportunity for cleanliness that you could give it. But you know what? You set it down, you turn it loose, and what's it going to do? It's going to run right back to the mud. It's going to make a free choice Not to be clean, but to be filthy. Why? Because that's its very nature. And so it is with us as human beings. We're free. We have free will. But we always freely choose in accordance with our sinful human nature unless God intervenes. And just like physically dead people, the spiritually dead person doesn't even know that he's dead. There's no ability to think or feel or respond. We've all been to funerals. You think of when you have seen an open casket, for instance. That body doesn't respond. That body can't think. That body cannot feel. There is no life. You could take and you could present that body with everything in this life that it ever desired when he or she was alive. And guess what? They're not going to respond. So it is with the spiritually dead. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The phrase there, he is not able. It's not just they choose the spiritually dead not to understand the things of God, or they understand and they reject. No, because we were spiritually dead, we have no ability to think or feel or understand or comprehend the things of God. Just in the same way that a dead body cannot do the things that you and I who are alive physically can do. 
So Paul starts in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 with an apt description, just lays it right there all out for us and says, first of all, you have to understand that you were dead. The second thing that he said characterizes us in verse 2, after he says, you once walked in your trespasses and sins, he says, you followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The second thing that he says characterizes us was that we were followers. Another word picture. And he's careful to explain that we were following two things. The first thing he says that we follow, he says you followed the course of this world. Now two weeks ago, Mike Mitchell stood up here and spoke from the book of 1 John and explained This is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the world. It's not talking about the physical creation, but rather a reference to society's values and way of doing things. Going back to the passage that Mike preached a couple of weeks ago, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and Bruce referenced it this morning, the world is characterized by three things. First of all, the desires of our flesh. Or our desires to please, or our will to please ourselves at any cost. Whatever feels good to me, that is what I want to pursue, and I will gratify this. It's characterized by the desires of the eyes, or the fact that we are motivated by what we see. We tend to covet and to lust after the things that are before us. It's also characterized by the pride in possessions. There is Bruce explained this morning, a preoccupation with the temporal or physical things that pass away. He says, we followed the course of this world. We were consumed with the lust of the flesh, with satisfying our own desires, with the lust of the eyes, with pursuing these temporal things that we see every day, with coveting them, with prizing them over a relationship with our Creator, and the pride and possessions the preoccupation that comes with these things, the wasting of life that comes with pursuit of these over pursuit of our Creator. So he says you were characterized as a follower, first of this world, and secondly, again in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air. So while following the course of this world describes what comes from within, following the prince of the power of the air describes what is outside. You see, this world system that we are preoccupied with at the expense of our souls that was described in Scripture is under the authority of none other than Satan himself. For example, in John 12, verse 31, Jesus describes Satan as the ruler of this world. Again, he's not talking about the physical creation, but rather the world system. It is under the authority of Satan. It is orchestrated and pushed along by his agenda. And so to follow the course of this world, to follow the prince of the power of the air, a reference to the devil himself, is to think and to live for self And according to the presuppositions, the ideologies, and the standards over which sin and Satan have control. A system that does not consider God and is openly hostile 
to him and to his ends. So Paul says, not only were you dead in your trespasses and sins, you were unable to think, feel, or respond to spiritual things. He said, you were also followers of the course of this world and of the dominion of Satan himself. Thirdly, in verse 3, he goes on to say, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We'll stop there to see the third thing that he says characterizes us before Christ. He says the third thing you were is that you were slaves. You were slaves. And again, he shows two things that we were enslaved to before Christ. He says, first of all, you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. We were first of all slaves to the desires of our bodies. Now he uses two words here that I want to focus on. He says, you lived in the passions of your flesh. The word that is used here in the original for passions is a word for strong inclinations and desires of every sort. It's not just talking about sexual lust, for instance, or sexual passion. It's passion for everything. Hey, it's going back to the first John, the passage that we talked about just, just a couple of minutes ago. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You pursued all of these things willfully. He says you were slaves. Hey, you lived in the passions of your flesh and you carried out the desires of the body. He says our flesh here refers to our bodily desires. A couple commentators that I, I was looking back at, for example, MacArthur in his commentary, describes it as the dissipation of life that comes when one is abandoned to doing whatever feels good. Another explained it as that which leaves God out of the picture, that which is merely human and left to its own devices. The one who is a slave to the desires of the body or the flesh does whatever appeals to their desires at all points in time. Just as a slave physically carries out the desire of their master. In this case, spiritually speaking, the master is your own sinful fleshly desires. Whatever feels good, whatever will please me in the moment, that is what I seek out and that is what I do. But Paul doesn't stop there and tell us that we were slaves to the desires of our bodies. He also says you were slaves to the desires of your mind. The mind here refers to your willful, deliberate choices that once defied the will of God. God said, do this, and we refuse to do it. God said, don't do this, and we disobey, and we go and do it. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Ephesians described it like this. The unsaved apart from Christ. He says, they think as the world thinks. They take their opinions ready-made from their favorite newspaper. Their very appearance is controlled by the world and its changing fashions. They all conform. It must be done. They dare not disobey. They are afraid of the consequences. Now, it would be the natural response 
of the unbeliever at this point to throw up their hands in denial. Whoa, no, I'm not a slave. I do what I want to do. There's nobody within or without telling me what to do. In that response, I would say you've proved my point for me because you're the best kind of slave. A slave that doesn't even realize that they're a slave. And so apart from Christ, as spiritually dead followers, slaves, all we know how to do is follow and obey our sinful, wretched nature. That's all we can do, is look to satisfy this. And in doing so, we demonstrate that we are slaves to the desires of our body and the desires of our mind. And so Paul reminds the Ephesians, first of all, you were dead, you were followers, you were slaves. And lastly, in verse 3, he says, you were children of wrath. Verse 3 says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, again, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Apart from Christ, every person by nature is the object of God's wrath. Now for many, the idea of God's wrath is an uncomfortable and unpleasant subject. It makes a lot of sense. Hey, but when the Bible talks about God's wrath, it's not pointing to God as a petulant toddler who doesn't get their way. Hey, or somebody tells them no. And so he throws a hissy fit. You know, starts smiting sinners who dare defy him in his wrath until he calms down. No. Wrath in the scriptures, or when it points to God, it's talking about his constant displeasure and his necessary reaction to sin. Not outbursts of angry passion, but rather the only response that a holy and righteous creator can have to something that is so other than him. To people, to individuals whom he created for a purpose and who have willfully defied that purpose and made themselves into something that is is an affront to his very character. See, it's impossible to separate the sinner from the sin because sin in its very nature at its very root, is personal. It's not as if God could judge just sin as an entity unto itself and leave the sinner out of it. No. Scriptures are clear that we are sin by nature. And in in being sinful by nature and in acting out of that nature to do sinful acts in defiance of God's will, we are sinful unto ourselves. And so God must deal with us as sinful people. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18, Paul demonstrates that God's wrath against sin is a result of mankind's suppression of the truth about God that He has clearly revealed to all of us. His wrath against sin is fully justified. And so Paul writes, he said, in being slaves, in being followers of the course of this world, in being dead in your trespasses and sins, the result of this is that you were children of wrath. You stood under the just 
condemnation, the sentence of death for your willful defiance of your Creator. This was our condition before Christ. One of the commentaries that I read summed it up this way. He said, The picture that the text paints is bleak. Because of sins, humans are the living dead. They live in keeping with a world order that ignores God and in keeping with a tyrant who works to cause disobedience. In their enslavement, they follow desires and distorted reasonings that leave God out of the picture and therefore they are under God's wrath. But the main point of Ephesians and especially of chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is that God will not stay out of the picture. This would not be a fun message if it all stopped right there at verse 3. You're children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. Here we go. Let's go home. Thank God there's more verses in Ephesians chapter 2, which we do not have the time to get into tonight. But I want to step back and think about the impact of these verses of 1 through 3. First of all, to those of us as believers, what are we supposed to do with this? I would encourage us, first of all, to avoid the extreme of overreading the text or making it say something that it's not intending to say. Take verses 1 through 3 exactly for what they are. They're not intended to be a full theology of the human condition. They're word pictures. Dead, followers, slaves, children of wrath. They're dramatic descriptions of our former lives apart from Christ, intended to make a point, intended to drive home, this is who you were. Don't overreact to the text. It would be easy to read this and to take a step back and go, whoa, I don't want any part of this. Or maybe to reject the world. All association, for example, with unbelievers, to withdraw, to look at the physical creation, to the good gifts that God has given us, and to say, well, I need to avoid those for sure. But a right understanding of Scripture doesn't allow for rejection of the unsaved, or the material world, or our enjoyment of it. Bruce explained that this morning. God pronounced His creation good. And the Apostle Paul assumes this throughout his letters. How then do we view the world? When we think about who we were, what we have been saved from, separation doesn't mean disrespect for or distancing ourselves from unbelievers or from the world around us. How do we react? Well, our attitude, the attitude of the believer towards the world And those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins and enslaved to it should mirror the love and mercy and compassion of God that is described in the rest of Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that this text addresses all of us. It's not just directed at the worst of sinners. No, remember this passage is directed first and foremost at the saints. And also religious people can be dead in sins too. Jesus' most frequent targets in the Gospels were those who were outwardly religious. 
the scribes and the Pharisees, who he called whitewashed tombs, who were full of dead men's bones. Don't be uncomfortable with, believer, or shy away from the idea of the wrath of God. You know, we read the phrase, you were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And in our culture, the idea of God's wrath seems to be theologically unsophisticated and and primitive. When you go and tell people that God disapproves of their sin, it's labeled as hate speech. But we know that telling people that you have a very serious problem is the most loving thing that we could do for any. So don't be uncomfortable with the idea of the wrath of God, despite what our world will tell you. Remember that in many ways, the Bible is actually the story of God's wrath. His reaction to disobedience and sin. It's an essential doctrine. It's not the only doctrine, but it is essential. You see, wrath and judgment of sin are the presuppositions of salvation. If God is not angry with sin, then what do we need to be saved from? A God who does not get angry and hate sin is a God who does not care. If he can look at sin and injustice that goes on in the world around us and he does not get angry, he is not much of a God. And he's not an unmovable, unfeeling force, but a God who cares. One commentator said, The story of the Bible is the story of God himself taking action to keep his anger from destroying humanity. After the fall in the wilderness, with the sacrificial system, with the prophets, in the exile and return, and most of all on the cross, God was at work dealing with his own anger and showing mercy. Yes, God is angry with sin. He cares deeply. And his anger is both an expression of his love and the context in which his love is demonstrated. You see, even in his wrath against sin, God is merciful. And that brings me to the unbeliever who might be hearing me tonight. Yes, verse 3 closes with the idea that you were children of wrath. This speaks to our past For those of us who know Christ, if you're an unbeliever, it speaks to your present condition. You are a child of wrath. You stand in danger of being judged for your sins when God takes you out of this world. But the good news is, when we talk about God's wrath, we only preach wrath to the one who will not turn from their sins and turn from mercy and forgiveness to Jesus Christ. You see, as one of the commentators mentioned before that we read, God will not stay out of the picture. And when we have the opportunity to go on to verse 4, the first word is, but. But. It doesn't stop there. So even as these three verses describe your condition, spiritually dead, followers, slaves, and a child of wrath, understand that you don't have to stay in that condition. Because for anyone who will turn from their sins, 
stop trusting in their own righteousness and turn to Christ and believe that He died on the cross for their sins so that they can be forgiven and forsake those sins to follow Him, you will find nothing but mercy and forgiveness in measures that you never ever even imagine. And you will no longer be a child of wrath, but you'll be a child of God. And you'll know life, eternal life, more abundantly than anything that you could ever know on this earth. And so I plead with you tonight, if you do not know Christ, turn from your sins, turn to Him and trust in His finished work in repentance and faith and follow Him. Ask for His forgiveness and you'll have it. Let's go ahead and let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had tonight as a family to gather together to worship you, to hear your word, and to celebrate what your son did for us on the cross and to remember his sacrifice. Father, I pray for each one in here that we would remember and that we would be grateful and that you would let your word sink into our hearts as far as who we were before Jesus, Father, that you would use this knowledge and this understanding to grow us and to draw us closer to him and to make us more like him. Pray, Father, as as we go on our separate ways this week, that you would watch over each one of us. Father, that you would guard our hearts, that you would guard our faith, that you would help us to stand fast and to be faithful witnesses for Jesus in whatever walk you have put us in, and that you would give us grace to live in a way that's honoring and pleasing to him. So, Father, we trust you with these things. We trust each of us as individuals to you. We ask that you bring us back safely next week. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.